Hey, chocolate lovers. This week is part four of our season two wrap up. This episode features the full length interview I did with Jan Schubert, a conservation leader for Original Beans Chocolate. Original Beans is based in the Netherlands and focuses on conserving the very forests which grow our cacao. Since its founding, the company has worked with farmers around the world to plant over 2.4 million trees. I interviewed Jan for episode 21, titled, Is Chocolate Going Extinct? In the interview, we discuss improvements in cocoa farming, rare cacao varietals, and potential value-adds for farmers. Jan had to do this interview from a hostel in Colombia, so there's a bit of background noise, but please bear with us. Enjoy! So, could you introduce yourself? Yes, so my name is uh, Jan Schubert. I'm at the moment working as conservation cacao leader for Original Beans, based in Ecuador and in charge of our projects in Latin America. And I started in the cacao world back in 2010, when I traveled as a volunteer to South America, and I stayed for one and a half years working as a volunteer on cooperatives and association conservation projects that has uh, had something to do with cacao, most of the time in Ecuador, but also in Colombia, in Bolivia, in Peru. And since this first visit of South America, this first travel and work experience there, I had the contact to Original Beans, which uh, owner and founder I met in the year before on a fair. So I already had the chance to visit the first original beans projects there in Ecuador and then in Peru. And my chocolate life started a little bit earlier in 2006. When I was 16, I started to make my own hot chocolate and sell it and made an official chocolate brand out of it, which was like a hobby. It was not really serious. I was still at high school, but I started to get involved in the German chocolate. Um, yeah, seeing and fairs and starting to sell some kind of hot chocolate, which after a while became bean to bar. And that's, yeah, where it started. After this, in 2011, I came once more back to South America. In 2012, I started uh, studying food technology, specialized on sweets and chocolate. And now, since four years, I'm full-time in South America and in charge of our project development over here. And what is the scope of Original Beans projects in the Americas? Do you, what, what countries are you working in at the moment? We are working at the moment in, in Bolivia, in Peru, in Ecuador and in Colombia, where we have existing projects where we are already getting cacao from in Mexico. And besides that, we have projects that we are setting up or evaluating for the future in two different parts of Brazil and also in Guatemala. And what kinds of work do those projects end up doing on the ground? Is it different with every country or do you have any kind of standards set in place for what you try to achieve in each country or with each farm in each region? Well, let's say like the goal of each project is the same, but the work is very different. So each project is a mix of conservation and cacao work. 
So all our projects are located nearby to national parks or conserved areas that in our vision, we try to support the conservation of these areas by creating an alternative income solution by specialty cacao. And uh, the work on the ground depends a lot on the local partners. So we have local partners like in the north of Peru, in Pura, it's a, a big cacao cooperative. They are very specialized of specialty cacao. So I don't have to be there to explain them about quality of cacao fermentation or any kind of processing analysis with them because they know by heart. But as they are cacao cop, they are not so much involved in environmental issues. So there my focus of the work is much more how to get involved the local community in forest conservation, finding local partners for big reforestation campaigns and things like that. Um, in other projects, like for example, I'm at the moment here in Colombia at the Sierra Nevada National Park. Um, here our local partner is the Asuaruaco, so it's like the representative of an indigenous group. And they are very involved in nature conservation, but for them, specialty cacao is new. So the project goal is totally the same, but my work changes because here I don't have to focus on the nature conservation part. Here I really focus helping them to achieve the quality, working with them on fermentation and drying protocols at the moment, doing organic certifications for them. There are farmer groups that has been established before we started working with them, but there are others like in Ecuador that we help to get organized like an association and get all the legal stuff done. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a lot of different aspects of, of work and depends on the status of each project, what things we, we have to focus on. So what does this idea of nature conservation look like on a cacao farm on the ground? What kinds of uses of the, of the environment are you having to shift or change? Well, on a very first standard, all our projects are organic certified. That's the first thing. And we really try to improve the organic farming skills. So it's not about just getting the stamp on a certificate, but it's really that farmers learn how to make uh, fertilizers their own, how to use um, advanced organic practices like permaculture or biochar and things like that. On the other hand, is that we promote a very extensive way of cacao farming, what we call cacao forests, what often is called agroforestry systems, but unfortunately there is no definition of agroforestry. So there are big industrial players that claim agroforestry and at the end they have a, a huge cacao monoculture and then in the middle of that they have two trees of another species and then it's agroforestry for them. So what we really want to um, promote is that it's cacao in the shade of native tree species and timber trees that can be used in the future for an income. And that's like the, the cacao part. So we are trying with our partners adapted to each region to find the most sustainable way of, of growing cacao. On the other hand, um, all these cacaos are grown in buffer zones or sometimes like here in Colombia inside of the national parks. So it's also like providing with the cacao because 
getting them to another quality level and therefore being able to pay other prices, providing such a good income solution that you can stop other kinds of income generation as logging, as illegal hunting, things like that. We do this by contract. So in some of our projects, we have long-term conservation contracts where the same farmers as counterpart of receiving a really good price for the cacao commit for five years, for 10 years to preserve a certain area of normally community-owned areas, mostly primary forest areas. For the farmers you're working with, what proportion would you say cacao is their main source of income? It's hard to say because in most of them it's the main income, but for none of them it's the, the only income. So we are working with a lot of cacao farmers that have other crops for the local markets like fruit trees that they grow in intercropping in their cacao plots. So they sell, let's say, citrus fruit, oranges or or things like that to the local market. On the other hand, we have cacao farmers that grow cacao together with coffee. So they have this other export crop, coffee, or sometimes also mango or coconut. And um, they are all very small-scale farmers. So, yeah, I, I would say like 80% of the farmers we are working with, cacao is the most important income solution, but for 0%, it's the only income. In terms of the, the problems that farmers are running into, are there any obstacles that are preventing them from continuing with cacao farming? When you're starting to work with a new community, are they excited about the prospect or wary or what are what are they thinking about you coming in and to be honest that depends a lot on the on the region where we are, you're working in so um for me it's always uh, good to compare like i'm living in ecuador and for me the two extremes of working is peru and and colombia so the two neighbor countries in peru it's very easy to in my experience, maybe there are other regions where I never have worked in where it's different, but in my experience in Pura and in Cusco, it has been super easy to organize farmer groups. They have been super excited once that you told them that it's about a native cacao, that it's something special, that they have to be proud of, that they have to preserve it, that it's only in their valley. It's super easy to get them very emotional about their product and very... Um, keen of reaching a certain quality and being proud of getting the best cacao and so on. So there it has been really like easy to motivate them about quality aspects, about aspects that this cacao is native to their region. Whereas in Colombia, because of the dark past with the FARC and the guerrillas, it's still like don't trust your, your neighbor. So it's, hardly possible to get any association really working here in Colombia. That's also why the cacao market is different. Whereas in Peru, most of cacao farmers are organized in cooperatives or association here. The specialty market now is, is organized more by private brands. Our partner, for example, here is Cacao de Colombia, which you may know from their own brand, Cacao Hunters. It's a super good company, but they have to organize their farmers and they have to invest a lot of time of really motivating them working 
with specialty cacao and getting to another level of quality because on the one hand there there's this difficulty that they don't want to cooperate and work together and on the other unfortunately in some countries ecuador may be the best example there's been so much uh, projects in the past from USA, from the GIZ, from wherever, where people have received training courses, where people have received equipment, where people have been trained, you have to get a higher quality. And afterwards, there has been no market for that. So the people feel like, why should we participate once again when afterwards we will not receive a better price or when afterwards we even have no chance to sell our product? So that is also depending on the regions, but there are a lot of regions in, in Latin America where people in the last 10, 20 years had received so many projects and capacity buildings, but there was never a market access part of these projects. So they just are bored of these kind of projects and it's very hard to convince them at the start that you you are serious about it. And so that is makes it sometimes hard at the beginning to, to motivate the farmers. So insofar as the last four or five years in particular, when, I mean, craft chocolate as a product has really blown up and it seems like a lot more people are aware of it. How have you seen that desire? Because that, I mean, this idea that we're running out of cocoa or that people are now willing to pay a much higher price for cacao seems to have motivated a lot of farmers to start planting different types of cacao or to work really hard on post-harvest. Have you seen that change at all from going from the NGOs trying to improve quality to maybe chocolate makers being more interested Yeah, unfortunately, to be honest, I'm very critical about this whole positive impact of bean-to-bar movement. Yes, it exists. On the other hand, it is much smaller and super overestimated. So about five to seven years ago, there was this wave of people from Europe coming to to events like the Salon de Chocolat in Lima or things like that, talking about the specialty market, that it will grow by 200% in one year and whatever, but they never have been talking in, in real numbers. So there has been a lot of cooperatives that got super emotional and thought, okay, I can sell in the future all my cacao for two times world market price. And because they had, especially in Peru and in Colombia, so much money from this project that wanted to change coca to cacao from the USAID. It was um, yeah, a lot of money that had got into this project. They had access to good infrastructure from one moment to the other. So these projects funded high-end infrastructure courses. They started to, to grow in some regions, native cacaos, most regions like known fine flavor hybrid materials or sometimes also, also known as, as trinitarios. And uh, so the quality in general increased a lot in, in Latin American countries. And there was really like a, a run on making better quality. And in the end, the market access was super little. So what happens in my personal opinion at the moment is that it's still super, super hard to find very good cacao. 
So if you really want to ser- to get a native Junchu cacao, you have to be there in Piabamba. You have to be in the valley. You have to visit every farmer and organize your your purchase of wet cacao on your own to assure to get this native cacao. But if you're just interested in a little bit more standard way of good cacao, so centralized process, good fermentation level, good drying, very clean, and from some kind of fine material, Trinitarius, then the market is so overcrowded that I think it's not more an advantage for the farmers group. It's more that they invest a lot of time in reaching these quality levels. And because the market is so overcrowded, they have to sell uh, huge volumes for quite low prices. So yes, they get more than the world market price, but it's by far not the price that they had expected. So there are cooperatives offering thousands of tons where they expected, yeah, two times world market price. And at the end, they end up uh, being paid the, the fair trade premium. So at the moment, it's more the time where industrial clients can get for still very cheap prices, super good cacao qualities here in Latin America. So if you compare the cacao price at the moment, even the fair trade organic cacao price, market price is below the 2015 market prices. But the qualities you get now for these prices are totally different to 2015. So for somebody who gets very opportunistic to to Peru and and says, I want to buy 10,000 tons of cacao and I I pay $3,000, he will get nowadays for $3,000 a highly processed, good selected cacao. For the farmer organization, let's see So there's still a lot of ongoing projects, but the projects are getting less and less. And I think it will be at a certain moment, they will recalculate and rethink and go back to their old practices going away from making quality because it just economically makes no sense to spend all this needed equipment, the needed workload and and time into processing higher quality in the end you get only 10 or 20 percent more money for it so that's a little bit my my personal opinion that this makes no sense obviously when you read the reports from the from the ngo they claim it as as huge success that they help farmers to get thousands of tons sold for 15 or 20 percent uh, higher than the world market price but you have to see all the workload that is behind reaching this 20% more. What kinds of changes have farmers been making in terms of time inputs or material inputs that have increased quality? So that is hard to say globally, but in these uprising cacao countries like Colombia and Peru, I think that there have been a lot of improvements in, in infrastructure. So people have learned and ended skills of post-harvest. So there is now more interest and more care about fermentation and drying. I would also say that um, in what they call here good agriculture practice, that is something that the farmers are much better trained and several countries started to set up a certification system so you can get certified as a trained cacao farmer or the 
there are some training courses that are officially approved. So in Latin America, I would say in the last 10 years, uh, raising access to capacity building from every step in the supply chain. So let's say from a nursery and tree planting to storing cacao, they have learned a lot, but then it depends. So then you will find projects where they use all this knowledge really to make higher quality. Or I'm, I'm living in the, in the Amazon area of Ecuador. So there you will also find a lot of, uh, of projects of farmer groups, they never got out market access. And you go there and you will still find the cacao thrown on the main road, drying on the asphalt, with all the monia mixed in it, with all the bad cacao. And you ask them why they are doing it. And he will tell you, I know everything about a selected harvest, how to ferment, how to dry, how to store it correctly. But why should I do it when nobody pays a single cent more for good quality than when I just throw it here on the street and when it rains, it rains and when it gets moldy, it gets moldy. So in theory, there is a huge increase of, of knowledge in a lot of Latin America countries. But as long as there is no major demand of fine quality cacao, there will be a huge part of these farmers not using their skills, but just going back to what they have done before. Could you ever see the farmers that you've worked with, at least, cutting down their cacao and planting something else? Um, yes. So Ecuadorians are very good <laughs> short-term decision makers. So when the cacao price went down last year or two years ago. There were a lot of people on the coast cutting down their cacao. There's also Ecuador now only CCN 51. So there's been huge uh, programs in the past of, of increasing the volume of uh, CCN 51, so a non-fine flavor cacao. And also by the governmental institution, unfortunately in Ecuador, the, the idea was to grow in cacao and in volume. So that meant that they forgot a little bit about the um, environmental aspects or the sustainable aspects of cacao. And on the coast, there's been grown a lot of cacao without shade. So in monocultures in the sun. And two years ago, these, a lot of this cacao has been affected by a drought. And uh, people got really angry why they have not been supervised better. And this cacao was already dying because it was too dry. And I saw a lot of farms on the roads just cutting down their trees. So it's, it's hard to, to say that for, for Latin America, because you see in each re region, very, very different trends in the bonds. It's just starting and cacao is super, super hip. So the, where I'm in the moment in the north of Colombia, the people start growing more cacao. In other parts of Peru, the people start growing more cacao because they see it as a really alternative income solution. They really see a future in the cacao. And then you travel to other parts where they just cut it down. It could be still in Bahia and Brazil where people cut down cacao. It is Ecuador sometimes. So it's, it's hard to, to say Latin America makes this and that. For example, in Ecuador, on the coast areas where cacao is grown by, by bigger farms and and huge haciendas, these people have money to invest so they can easily change, for example, to a huge banana plantation. Whereas in my daily life as a small farmer with half an hectare and 
without any access to credits or to financing, uh, it's also, even if you wanted to do it, it's hard to change because uh, it's just not possible for you. I mean, what are farmers planting? For, for example, in Asia, the three main crops that farmers are planting across the entirety of the cacao-growing regions are palm oil, rubber, and durian. Are there any are there any crops that are commonly planted across or throughout Latin America or even just within Brazil? This is very popular in Ecuador. This is more popular. So the only crop that I really know that is replacing in a big farms is banana for export. And in the other areas, to be honest, I don't know. I know areas where they cut down the cacao and they did not replace it anyhow. So they just were angry about a, a bad price and they cut it down and now it's there. So let me think a moment. No, in, in most of the other um, America's countries, uh, cacao is, is really just starting to, to getting more and more. So there's no crop really replacing it. In But that's very regional. In the Amazon area of, of Ecuador, we're facing at the moment a, a boom of dragon fruits of pitahaya. So there is cacao being replaced by pitahaya. Then there are areas that are affected by high cadmium levels, for example, in Peru, where it's no longer possible to export this to Europe, and that's a specialty market. So these cacao growers have been used to a very high market price because of the quality. And these people are changing at the moment, for example, to, to sugar cane and cane sugar production. But it's a very local initiative. So when you look at Latin America globally, then I, I would think there's no other crop replacing cacao. It's much more cacao replacing other crops. So I, I know there's a huge difference between like what cacao farmers in, for example, El Salvador versus in Brazil or Peru might need to live. But what kind of price increase would cacao farmers need in order to be at least satisfied with the quality of life that they can get from farming cacao? That's a very good question. <laughs> yeah, how, how to answer that? Because what we have to be aware is that the supply chain of producing specialty cacao is also much more complex. At the end, you have to be always aware, even if you pay three times world market price as an FOB price, you will not get three times farm gate price to the farm. So for the farmers at the end, the only thing that count in this sense is a farm gate price. But on the other hand, the production, because you can pay just two times more, for example, but you help them to increase the production on, on twice the level. It seems like, oh my God, increasing to the double of the volume, like a lot. But there are rural areas where the cacao productions are so low, it's in theory even possible to increase them by a factor 10. So where, when we started in Esmeraldas, the average cacao production was 70 kilos per hectare, and the average in Ecuador is 800 kilos. So just getting these farmers from from where they are to the average, not to some super productive system, just to the average of the country of 800 kilos, you have increased them 11 times. And obviously, 
they have a little bit more work, but that's both internal of the family. So even by paying the same price, you would you would increase <laughs> the the income, but by eleven times. Well, that's a little bit a topic that will not happen. But we are at the moment at 250 kilos so that's already four times what they had at the start of the project so in most of the regions um, um a, a really fair price would would be in in general about double what it's at the moment and this double can be reached by different factors it can be reached by increasing productivity it can be reached by paying better prices and obviously by a combination of well i mean that's incredible four times multiplying the yield but yeah a long way to go just to get up to average is is that a common situation in that region uh no <laughs> most of the farmers stay with very low yields and to be honest you you know it's the same like the craft chocolate sector and you you say yeah we have grown 300 percent in this and this year yeah when you start at zero it's it's super easy to grow this percentage so it will not continue like this in the future, but it was like a very initial training courses, technical stuff. They are cleaning their farm, pruning the old trees, one fertilizing campaign and so on. And then you get it on, on this level. And to be honest, that's a huge problem in Latin America that the yields of the cacao farms are super different. And in my opinion, it's not about if they grow what kind of variety they grow. It's really about agricultural practices uh, because we can see that with the selected pure Blanco cacao, so with a, one of the most known fine flavor cacaos uh, selected of an old native cacao in these valleys, uh, in organic agroforestry system, you can reach 1.6 tons of yield per hectare we have these farms so the farmers show that it's possible on the other hand you have ccn 51 by some groups they don't care about the cacao which is only yielding 200 kilos per hectare so this story about that it's so important for the genetic material you have in my opinion is not so right obviously it's much easier to produce higher qualities with some modern hybrid materials like CCN51, Matisse H595, or the EMCs materials. But it's not impossible to get quite good yields uh, with native cacao varieties and cacao varieties that are much better in flavor. And the differences between the best producing farms and the lowest producing farms are so high. So. You have areas in Ecuador and Esmeraldas where the, it's not like a cacao farm. It's more like a forest with a little bit of cacao in it. It looks really nice. Also from a conservation aspect, it's quite nice. But the production uh, is super low. It's about normally 100 kilos per hectare in this region, whereas you can find um, about 4.2 tons per hectare. This is why I wanted to talk to someone who had experience in Ecuador or Colombia is because both of those countries, Ecuador more so, has a history of industrial cacao and selling a lot of commodity cacao. But in recent years, it has also had a lot of farmers and cooperatives and groups shifting towards this specialty cacao market. What is the difference for a farm that is 
producing specialty cacao and selling to specialty chocolate makers or selling at the specialty level versus a farm that is selling more on the industrial level, if you have any experience in that regard? Well, to be honest, um, we have to have a very critical look of what is sold on the specialty market. So obviously there are projects in the specialty market, they focus on genetics. In Ecuador, you would say that you look for old national cacao and they never find it, but well, that's a big thing in, in Ecuador. Then it starts really like training the, the farmers and getting a cleaner product, a better fermentation, a better drying, all very standardized to special protocols. There are two types, the area where I am working in and where I have a lot of knowledge is more these small farmer association cooperative project-based areas. So we are searching for cacaos that also make an impact on the ground. And I think in this specialty cacao, it's a, a big part of it. But obviously there's also specialty cacao coming from farms, from haciendas. And they have uh, the big advantage that they can hire people that do all these fermentation protocols. Often they have much more access to financing so they can just invest in super good post-harvest systems. And then you get also specialty cacao, but with other aspects. So for me, that's, that has to be differentiated that there is a, like a specialty small holder cacao, and then there's a specialty farm cacao. And there are several farms in Ecuador and Colombia that produce these kind of specialty cacaos in a very good quality. On the industrial level, I don't have so much experience, but I know one of the hugest exporters in, in Ecuador. So what they do is they purchase dry and wet cacao from all over. So at the end, what they, what they do is they, they just get everything and then they have a client that's asking for some flavor profile or sometimes also just for some characteristics like least not more than 30% mold <laughs> and then you you get all this cacao in and you just make a mix of, of what you have and, and um, but it's not that they producing for the standard sector it's just that they export everything which is left over as a mix for this industrial sector and on the other hand you obviously have huge haciendas huge farms that are producing only for the non-fine flavor sector and some of them have also quite advanced post-harvest systems for fermenting and drying, uh, especially when it's CCN51, because CCN51, if it's not fermented it dry, it, probably it's just horrible. So there, to be honest, there's a lot of claimed industrial cacao sold in Ecuador that is from a quite high quality. And we also have to be aware that specialty cacao is also a part of the story of specialty cacao is marketing. So I know that there are also quite simple non-special cacao sold as specialty cacaos just by selecting from somebody who exports, I don't know, 20,000 tons a year. And uh, then you always have the chance to, to select some 20 tons that are good and, and sell it for as a specialty. But at the end, it's the same cacao. So insofar as on the ground projects, what kind of 
value-added production, not just of chocolate, but any kind of cacao products, is happening in the Americas? And what kind of future do you see that having in the industry? Well, first of all, there is, uh, in all these countries, a lot of chocolate coming up. So that's very positive. A lot of these brands, first of all, all wanted, because it's a goal of the ministries of, of uh, economics, they wanted to export and to reach the best markets in Europe and wherever. But at the end, there are some brands that I know that are focusing now more on the local markets and that are very successful. Uh, so I think that's uh, something that is great, that there is a a market in origin. You can see that a lot in Brazil, obviously there are a lot in Mexico as well, and here in Colombia as well, that, that there is really a market for high quality chocolate and that you can prices, uh, that you can get prices for curvature, for cacao mass and for cacao bars that it's hard to get in Europe. That is something that I'm always like, um, yeah, I, I think it's something very very unique and very special that in these still kind of uh, very poor countries it's easier to ask for a fair price for one kilo of curvature than for us in Germany. So it's good for them to sell just in the countries because it's easier to sell it. Um, then there are several projects starting producing cacao chews which in my opinion is a super interesting product, but unfortunately in the work set where I'm normally working in, it's just impossible to do that. These small farmers that each of them have half a hectare and are located like here in, in, in Colombia, it would be just impossible. The Arapo people are from two to 12 hours into the Sierra Nevada bringing their fresh cacao. So it's impossible by hygienic standards to get to get this uh, cacao juice, so it's more for, for big industrial farms. And I think the example for them has to be Brazil, because in Brazil, in every supermarket, you can buy fresh cacao juice uh, in, the, in the supermarkets. And in all the other Latin American countries, that's not there yet. So that is, I think, other other opportunity. I saw recently starting producers in Ecuador exporting quite good amounts of cacao fruits as fruit to the United States. I think $1 per pot and selling each time like 2,000 pots. So it's much better income generation than selling beans for chocolate. Then there are a lot of initiatives that are very small and very isolated, but can be fun at least in the future. Maybe some of them have a bigger future. Here in Colombia, there are initiatives making paper out of the cacao pot. Then there are initiatives making kind of paper cart and stuff of the husk. So a lot of uh, things going on. Wine, obviously, from the cacao fruit. But it's like these small association-based initiatives. So you mentioned earlier a project by the Peruvian government to eradicate coca or at least lessen the production of coca and replace it with cacao. Do you see a lot of governmental intervention do you see a lot of governmental intervention in in agriculture in in cocoa in, in particular 
as a form of sort of replacement or enhancement trying to in for example in, in taiwan and um taiwan and a couple of other countries they're in asia they're trying to convince farmers to add cacao to existing plots in in the philippines in particular because farmers are underutilizing their land is there any kind of um, initiative to do this elsewhere in in the americas so this initiative by the Peruvian government is, well, it's executed by the Peruvian Minister of Agriculture, but the money and incentive of doing so is in USA, so a United States-based project called Cacao for Peace. And this project, I think, is at the moment still running, but it has, um, has took place in Bolivia, in Peru, and in Colombia. Obviously, working there with the local government, so with the Colombian government, with the Bolivian, and with the Peruvian, also with the cacao associations in these countries. And they really have still this vision of replacing coca for cacao. It happened in a lot of areas. So one of the famous areas where you can get now very good cacao maybe the Ucayali River cacao from Peru, also the Vrai, which is now getting more and more into the cacao sector. Here in Colombia as well, you have a lot of uh, different origins where these projects had, had a positive impact because they finance post-harvest infrastructure certification and farmer training. So yes, that's not the own funds from these governments, but they are, they are investing in. So they, you can see that. If it works out, I'm very critical about that because I see the coca just moving from one place to the other. And so as long as there is a high demand for it, there will be somebody producing it. And let's see when the cacao farmers get the new cacao farmers that um, grown cacao since this project get bored of cacao because at the end, you never ever will be uh, competitive with the income of cacao compared to coca, that's just impossible. So coca is so much less work and it's so much higher income. So let's see if this helps. Um, and then there are some other initiatives for using cacao in areas where they have been grown coffee. So that's more like a climate change initiative. So this is kind of become a big topic in the idea of cacao disappearing or a world without chocolate. But what effects have you seen of climate change upon the cacao farms that you've visited in recent years? And what do you see as cacao's future in the face of any of these changes? So what we are facing here in the tropics, I would say in general, so um, on the equator is that all weather phenomena are getting more regular. So for example, you normally had a dry season and a rain season, and it's getting more pronounced. So now one year you have a big drought that is causing big losses in other crops, not so much in cacao, but more in, in other things like rice. And uh, two years later, you have huge flooding and, and things like that. Obviously, that happened in the past, but in the past, it happened maybe every 20 years. And now it's one year, it's drought, and the next year is flooding, and then it's drought, and it's flooding. So it's more, a lot of these regions are affected in general. We do not see yet any effects on the cacao. So the cacao is producing uh, still very good. 
but it's getting harder and also obviously more expensive to work in these regions because of climate change circumstances. Um, then there are other areas that they are just starting to grow cacao where it has not been um, so good for cacao before. So there the climate change is more like opening the door for cacao, enabling to grow cacao in good conditions. This is a lot of, for example, these altitudes between 500 and 1000 meters. There are in several countries I have been seen that there are new valleys where they start to grow cacao, where they had been, yeah, for example, coffee before. All cacao farms that I have seen so far that are were really affected by climate change, so by too dry climate and so on. To be honest, um, in my opinion, it has been also the fault of them because it has been grown in monocultures, it has been grown in fully sun without any shade trees. So I hope that when the cacao sector in general moves more towards sustainable agricultural practices, including agroforestry, including shade, including soil enrichment, then uh, there will not be so much effects on cacao because we see that cacao is a very strong tree, very adaptable compared to other crops. And I think also that native cacaos here can have a huge role in this whole scenario because they are adapted much better to certain climate conditions. Gives you a huge biodiversity of cacao that can be much more adaptable to climate change than when you grow just one clone. So I think that's really a huge risk when you go for 100% CCN51 and something in the future has happened in climate change or also a new uh, disease. Uh, it's a huge risk whereby when you stay with old land races, native cows and this rich biodiversity that we still have in the Americas in cacao, then we can prevent a lot of these problems in the future. Yeah, in, in Malaysia, all the farmers I visited have said that they have at least six varietals of cacao on their farms for various reasons, but also just to prevent that same issue of if one varietal kind of goes to hell or is hit with some kind of disease, then they have five or more other varietals to, to rely upon. I just have one more question. And it's basically, what do you think will be the biggest problems with growing or maintaining the cacao industry in the Americas in the future, in the next 10, 20, uh, 30 years, if you can imagine that far in the future? Very general. I, I think that cacao will be always an, an alternative here for for the whole Americas and especially for um, the poorer countries in South America just because there are no other alternatives. So we can complain a lot of uh, low cacao price and low productivities, but on the other hand, compared to other crops, it's still very attractive and I think it always will be attractive because of several reasons. The basic skills of cacao farming are very easy to learn. Cacao is very adaptable to the different microclimates. So we have it in Esmeraldas where the cacao is in the mud all the year and it's raining uh, 300 days a year. We have it in Pura where it's raining five days a year and it's in 
in a ground without any soil, just on the rocks. And it's uh, possible to grow it in any kind of intercropping. So that's also a huge advantage. You can see cacao in the Americas grown in the shade of my old mango trees. You can see uh, people growing something in the shade of cacao or having it in the shade of native trees or intercropping with coffee. So the, the possibilities are are so much bigger than with other other crops. For example, what I understood, I'm not an expert, so I don't know a lot of it, but with palm oil, for example, it's quite hard to find solutions of intercropping. So with cacao, it always is easy. So I think it will it will be there always in South America. And, and at the moment, it's starting that the people are, are realizing, okay, but um, now there is no market for the product that we are producing. So... There will be in Peru and in Colombia and special maybe in about five years a situation that we had a few years ago in Ecuador where the people just went back to drying the cacao on the streets and don't caring for anything because there was not enough market for part of them. So that will happen and then maybe there will be another another hype of trying to, to improve the quality again and so on. Unfortunately, I think that the future of specialty cacao, oh well, it depends a lot on the market. It depends now on what is demanding the, the specialty sector, the craft chocolate sector. I really hope they will demand more native cacaos, more cacaos from smallholder farmers with social and environmental impact. Because if not, it will move very fast towards farms, huge professional farms. Because in case of a standardized quality, it's obvious that for a huge professional farm, it's much easier to produce high quality and one standard cacao than for a small farmer association that you need already five years to get them organized and making their stuff and getting certified. It's you know, it's so much more work involved in trying to get smallholder farmers from very rural areas for areas where it really cacao can make an impact to getting them connected to the international market. It's it's really a lot of work. And I, I hope that the market, um, the specialty market, the craft chocolate market will recognize that and will demand these kind of cacaos. Because then also we are really enabling these people to, to make a difference. And then they will continue to, to grow cacao and they will continue to safeguard their old varieties or land races or whatever they, they have. And I'm quite sure that these cacaos uh, will then survive climate change or whatever will happen. Yeah, the Americas are really the genetic bank for cacao. Are you finding old farms or forgotten farms at the rate at all? Yes, uh, definitely. So, you know, it's the two sides of uh, the Americas at the moment. On the one hand, you have the increasing, very fast increasing CCN volumes in, in many of these countries, uh, most of uh, most Ecuador. And on the other hand, there is still this richness of um, yeah, what I call land races. So it's not really native cacao, but it's some cacao that has brought hundreds, thousand years ago to some places and developed further there. So that's one cacao you, you can still identify and select. And on the other hand, there are 
really native cacao. So for example, at the moment we are starting again a second phase of selecting what they call Bunzi in the Sierra Nevada. So it's an old white Criollo cacao that is native to, to this area and might be like the mother stock of also the Criollos that went from here to Central America then. In Peru, there's a biodiversity international project ongoing on a re really, really big uh, genetic research project and it's a working process and it will be for at least two years more, what I understood. But they already found new clusters in the Amazon areas of Peru. And uh, yes, I think there's a lot of uh, things still to discover in the America's cacao world. Yeah. That was all of my questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to share on the topic of the future of cacao and this idea? It, the idea for the episode started in insofar as people sensationalizing running out of chocolate by 2050 or whatever. Yeah, I... The end of cacao as we know it, it depends a little bit of what's a cacao as we know it. But if we define it as the old picture of, of cacao genetics in Forestero, Trinitario, and Criollo, I hope that, yes, it's the start of the end of cacao as we, we know it, because um, it's now the time where, thanks to this craft chocolate movement, there's more interest also in, in other varieties, and we have to, to learn more about this, and the people have to get... Um, clear about it that you cannot split the cacao world in three groups and that there is a bad cacao a very good cacao and intermediate good cacao but that there are cultivars that there are land races that there are native cacaos that there are some native cacaos that have amazing histories by ancestral cultures that they brought to certain places that we are uh, I think every year we know a little bit more about the movements of this in, in Americas of this, this cacao. So I think it has to become part of the new cacao culture, also being aware that there is much more cacao varieties and cultivars out there than just three, and that there are a lot of other really special and really good cacaos and not only Criollo. Thank mm -hmm. you.